Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, U.S. Editor for Sport Business, Eric Fisher, and as always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. How are we doing this week, Chris? Doing very well, Eric. We've got the start of the NHL season, NBA preseason, and things are moving ahead in the sports space. Absolutely. A lot of deal flow uh, to get into, which we will uh, do so in just a moment here. We won't quite have every league on the same day, but this is pretty much as close as we get in a normal calendar to the beloved sports equinox where you have... Certainly the the biggest four North American sports properties, uh, the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NHL all going at the same time. And then Major League Soccer is also going where we've got a really competitive WNBA finals happening. College basketball is about to get going. College football is in full flight. This is uh, one of those really great times of the year that I particularly enjoy. And so do the betting companies because there's a lot of opportunities to bet. So uh, we'll see how they do as well. Absolutely. As uh, Chris mentioned, a lot of deal flow happening in the space here. We've got a couple of uh, big ticketing deals involving uh, special purpose acquisition companies, the SPACs, uh, to break down. LeBron James, NBA superstar, is uh, once again uh, expanding his uh, off-the-court uh, portfolio and Arctos, a uh, uh, Texas-based uh, venture capital entity, they've amassed a significant amount of money and are looking to get uh, very aggressive in uh, minority uh, team stakes in multiple parts of the world. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Tyler Tominia. She's the commissioner of the newly rebranded Premier Hockey Federation. Been around uh, the business for a long time and now has this uh, really interesting new role leading that women's hockey entity. So stay tuned for that conversation. And then Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down the news of the week. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Tyler Tominia, Commissioner of the Premier Hockey Federation. The longtime sports industry executive in August took over as full-time commissioner of the former National Women's Hockey League, solidifying what had been an interim role since October 2020, and she recently led a large-scale rebranding of the sports property to this Premier Hockey Federation identity. Tominia previously had been chairman of the Toronto Six, a 2020 expansion franchise in the league, and before that was senior vice president for minor league baseball team ownership entity, the Gold Clan Group. Just as a quick disclaimer, Chris has been informally consulting with the Premier Hockey Federation on sports betting-related opportunities, but he has not been formally engaged in any role with the property and currently is not receiving any compensation from them. But Tyler, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. So let's sort of talk uh, first about your your own journey. And, and uh, as I mentioned, you had been in minor league baseball before. That's when I first uh, met you. And, and then you uh, got involved with this uh, Toronto expansion franchise early last year. And now you're in this uh, much larger league role. If you could sort of just uh, walk us and our listeners through your journey through the industry and sort of what has led you to this particular role at this place in time. Sure. It's, it's always fascinating, right? Where uh, life takes us <laughs> sometimes. But yeah, 16 years in minor league baseball, um, grew up in baseball, worked in baseball. And, and uh, you know, it's always kind of been my first love and passion. And then I uh, was actually trying to sell off one of our teams 
and I was in a Boston uh, market area and I just went in to go watch a Boston pride game randomly met uh, a couple of the owners uh, that were owners at the time of Boston pride and then soon to be Toronto. And, you know, I just got into a conversation with them about women's hockey and not, you know, didn't think anything of it until a couple of months later, I got a call and they were wanting to expand and move into the Toronto market, which really was fascinating to me. And I wanted to be a part of it. So uh, I kind of jumped from baseball to women's hockey and uh, was in that chairman role for a couple of months. And then I got tasked interim commission here at the, what was called the NWHL at the time. Tyler, one of the big pieces of news, I guess, this year is that rebranding from NWHL to PHF. Can you talk a little bit about the rationale behind the rebranding and how is that going? Yeah, we had a really successful season six and we've had a lot of change. So ever since I started here now, I guess it's a year, um, it's been nothing but change. So our internal structure, how our ownership group is lined up, our governance, our pro- we've, we've created some deep bylaws and constitutions. And so we've, we've had a lot of internal change. We felt we're stronger than we've ever been. And the brand itself needed a refresh to kind of help us build on this current momentum that we're seeing. So uh, we really felt that the exterior needed a rebrand and we needed to redefine who we were as that brand. So Premier Hockey Federation, we landed on that um, because we wanted to be known as a league based on skill and talent of our players in a way that's gender neutral. When we were looking at uh, not only today, but tomorrow and how our roster and the composition of our rosters are going to look, if we were going to change your name, we didn't want to change it or have to change it again. And we felt raising the W was the time to do it. As we see, there's, we're not the first, right? Like there's definitely been other um, leagues that have raised the W out of their name as well. But Premier Hockey Federation felt really good for us. And what we were trying to do in the next couple of years, it felt global and it felt very strong. The athletes internally liked the name. And so that's where we landed with the PHF. You faced a, a series of pandemic-related challenges last season, like a lot of folks in, in the business here. But as you move forward here, how are you set up operationally for the upcoming season? Yeah, I feel really strong and confident leading um, into Season 7 here. We've uh, partnered with Cleveland Clinic. Oh, that was another one of my goals coming out of Season 6. That obviously, are highly reputable. I'm working very closely with them. We established a COVID policy. This year, what's different is we did mandate 100% vaccination from all our athletes, staff, coaching, front office, ownership. And we felt that that was important to the safety of not only our, our athletes, but we're back in rinks. And so we really wanted to make sure that any form of interaction between travel, rink, and back home, that we put everybody in a safe environment. And uh, so that's the major change that we've um, constituted. And, you know, again, we'll work closely with the uh, home rinks and their individual policies as well. Ty, I believe that a big off-season initiative for you was to uh, establish independent ownership among your clubs. What is the status of those efforts in terms of the broader ownership and, and what are the league's expansion plans going forward? Yeah, a year ago, I joined the league and as a new governance you know, model was introduced. So the NWHL had previously owned and operated all of its teams as a single entity structure, but last October transitioned into this joint venture model with private ownership that forms our board of governors. 
that process really unfolded over several months with the sale and transfer of ownership for of our six clubs. Uh, we already have the Boston Pride and Toronto Six independently owned by a group called BTM Partners. And then in May, the original NWHL LLC, which is known as W Hockey Partners, began divesting their four clubs, starting with Connecticut Whale. They sold it to Shared Hockey Enterprises. And then the Metropolitan Riveters were later sold to BTM Partners. Then both the Buffalo Buttes and Minnesota Whitecaps were sold to NLTT Ventures. So these changes like, may not necessarily have a lot of immediate external visibility for fans. But internally, for the athletes, it's very exciting because our owners are now deeply committed to enhancing the player experiences and benefits while building the professional environments that our athletes deserve. It's this structure um, is really, you know, we felt was really conducive to developing competition amongst our franchises and the local partnerships with, you know, our passionate fan bases. And I think that all improves the sustainability of the PHF. Expansion is a discussion that I have weekly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's a delicate balance and a formula, as you guys know. We will be expanding into Montreal in season eight. But, you know, a lot of conversations in varying degrees have to go into, you know, markets and where we'd like for those to be in the future while not growing too fast. And so right now, we definitely feel very confident and strong with our ownership structure that's in place. And I'm actually very, very happy because, you know, it takes a lot of time and due diligence in the process. But to get that done within the first year of being here and really writing the ship with strong financial backing now is, was, is key to our success moving forward. As you continue along those processes, what do you look for in new ownership, potential new ownership? Is it really about financial wherewithal or do you look at other factors such as a celebrity component or access to a particular facility where you can play or or what are those kind of key drivers? Yeah. So first, the process starts at the ownership level and doesn't involve myself or the board of governors until like an official offer is made and then there's votes that take place. But any potential ownership group needs to be well capitalized. But, you know, more importantly, we do want to align ourselves with people who share our values and integrity to grow the game. I get asked, I have many, many conversations weekly. (laughs) We've got a lot of interest in teams and we have a, a lot of discussions with businesses or people. And, you know, we just kind of, some maturate and some don't. So, but yeah, it's, it kind of is this huge cycle of, well, I mean, I've got eight board of governors and eight different people and, and I've got, you know, multiple ownership groups and then myself, but the process definitely is, it's not a quick one, but yes, we'd like to align with that, you know, well-capitalized and somebody that aligns with the mission that grow the women's game the way we want to. Tyler, moving to the day-to-day, what new opportunities are you pursuing in terms of media exposure, sponsorship? How is that whole effort going in terms of developing commercial deals with with key partners? Yeah, I'm really excited about our our media exposure deal for season seven. I think it'll be historic for this federation. And I think when we talk about the women's game in, in general, that landscape, you know, those are the opportunities and challenges at the same time that 
that we take on um, from the broadcast and the partnership level. We need the broadcast in order to get those partnerships in, and I need the partnerships in order to really grow my my broadcast uh, production. I'm very excited about season seven. I'm excited about some of the new partners that um, we're having discussions with. I mean, Chris, you know, you and I talk all the time, just, you know, trying to explore and be creative with different avenues of revenue, um, how we can bring that in through partnerships. I'm hoping that season seven will be the best yet. Early stage leagues, as you well know, often uh, tend to lose money. What is the general state of PHF or uh, financially and how are you on your pathway to profitability? Well, I can't go into too much detail about, you know, the financial snapshot of of where the ownership groups are at. Um, when you go into our, our kind of landscape, you know, you, you don't go into it thinking you're going to have a huge return, right? Like if I look at my past and when I go into investments, um, even on my own personal level, I do project an outcome of three to five years where I'm not really making any kind of return. I'm hoping because of season seven, kind of seeing what we're, what we're doing and the attention and awareness uh, that we'll see some, some growth on the revenue side. But I think the next two to three years and what we're trying to do and some of our objectives on the media exposure plans and the, and the partners will hopefully make some happy owners. <laughs> uh, Ty, what is the, the PF, PHF's relationship with the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association and how is that, uh, is that relationship potentially changing over time? Sure. I think it's a conversation that, you know, we've had and we've had multiple conversations. The relationship is definitely a lot more fluid and open than in years past. We have, you know, a a very open line of communication that we talk often. Um, I think we're both in in agreement as to where we would like to take the game. And I also think we're both in agreement that, you know, a unification, um, a one league where all athletes can aspire to to play and participate in is the goal. It is for us. And I think at this point, it's really going to take the athletes now. Athletes are very powerful, as you guys know. You know, they need to also, they, they're the difference makers. They need to take ownership of a league or, or a federation and help it grow. And we have some phenomenal athletes who have been instrumental in our success and definitely would like uh, to see a unified structure going forward. I think that's what's going to create a healthy, sustainable model for the women's game. Um, and, you know, the NHL has publicly said that as well, that they would like to see a united front. So we'll see... Um, you know, it does take time, like any professional or personal relationship. There's got to be trust and, and education uh, that has to go into that. And that does take time. Definitely willing to put in that time. As you well know, this has been a historic year for women's pro sports with new opportunities emerging, such as what's happening with the continued growth of the WNBA and Athletes Unlimited, but also more recent challenges, such as the current crisis with the NWSL. How does that broader industry landscape impact what's happening with the PHF? I think we all want to make sure that every league is doing their best. Um, It's important that all women's sports in general, we want them to succeed. Everyone uh, wants them to succeed. I think that's key to what we're trying to do even with partnerships and media, right? So we're very much dependent on one another. We very much cross promote with one another. But at the end of the day, like we, we definitely need everyone to succeed and, and grow. And uh, 
that's what I think is most important. And to our keys of our success here is that the more women programming that's out there, the better. And that's where I think the benefit is for all of us. Tyler, you have a lot of initiatives you're working on and probably not enough hours in the day. As you think about, you know, the next six to 12 months, what are the top one or two or three things you really need to get done that you think are really going to drive this league forward? I want my sports betting deal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we have a lot of things. Uh, You know, this is the first time that I'm even going (laughs) into the rinks. This is, I I started off uh, my tenure here not being allowed to be in front of fans and uh, we only had a two week season. So I think uh, for this season in particular, just getting back and just actually uh, uh, being, having that ability to get in the ranks with fans. And we definitely are trying to grow that sports entertainment model, be a little bit of a differentiator in the women's game by doing some different things that maybe perhaps the NHL can't do. So there's a lot of things that I'm excited about that, you know, may or may not work, but I think, What excites me about this federation in particular is we have the ability to, you know, test tube it a little bit, you know, not dissimilar to what like Major League Baseball does with the Arizona Fall League, right? Like there's some initiatives that we'd like to try out and some may be successful, some may not. But I think that's what I'm most excited about is just having the ability to try different things, taking a different approach to the game, maybe looking at the game or what has always been done typically, and maybe taking a different view of view of it all, you know. I mean, that's just kind of how uh, I feel when it even comes to our media exposure deal. You know, to get people to dial in, tune in. I think there has to be a unique factor. Well, clearly, a lot happening with the uh, Premier Hockey Federation. We're going to continue to track it across all the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank Commissioner Tyler Tamini for spending this time with us. Thank you both. Thank you. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Tyler Tominia from the Premier Hockey Federation again for spending that time with us. And shifting to the news of the week here, it was another really big week in the uh, ticketing and live event space here. Uh, a couple of really uh, big deals that uh, came to fore, uh, both involving uh, special purpose acquisition companies, the SPACs. SeatGeek and uh, active listeners of this podcast, you remember uh, back during the winter time, we had Russ D'Souza from uh, SeatGeek, uh, the New York-based uh, ticketing company, on, and uh, you know, at that point, he was uh, you know sort of a little non-committal as to where this was going to uh, go in terms of a potential intersection between uh, his company and a SPAC. But uh, you know, roughly seven or eight months later, here we come to find out he has now completed. Uh, he and his partners have completed a deal with Red Bull Acquisition Corp. And this is one of the first big SPACs in the space led by Jerry Cardinale from uh, Redbird Capital Partners and Billy Bean, the uh, president of uh, baseball operations for Major League Baseball's Oakland A's. They've had this SPAC uh, really for... uh, about a year and a half almost, and had been uh, looking around for a deal. They were close on something uh, initially with um, Fenway Sports Group before they did a private placement, and now they're going to take SeatGeek public. Now, alongside that, just right on the heels of that deal, separate company, uh, the Illinois-based Vivid Seats, they were already in the midst of, and we will be going public uh, just in a matter of days after this uh, episode drops through a uh, 
separate SPAC deal with another entity led by uh, Todd Boley, who's the uh, co-owner of MLB's Los Angeles Dodgers. As they're preparing to go public, DraftKings is investing into that deal through a private investment in public equity deal, commonly known as a pipe deal. And so DraftKings is going to be buying into that uh, Horizon Acquisition Corp Vivid Seats deal. Two very different deals on, in a certain sense, are completely separate transactions, but really the common thread, not only the SPAC component, but really that scale is the name of the game here. That as we move into this uh, dynamic new era of digital ticketing, you know, really accelerated by the uh, pandemic, you know, the data and all the things that unlock from F&B and concessions and loyalty, uh, you know, you name it up and down. Ticketing really is a gateway to so many other robust things and scale and resource are really going to be critical here. Absolutely, Eric. The ticketing space appears to be the land of the giants because we have Ticketmaster, a huge player, got StubHub acquired by Viagogo, Vivid Seats, a big player, and now SeatGeek, I think importantly for them, having access to- Fanatics getting into it. And and Fanatics potentially getting into it. And again, I think for SeatGeek, having access to financial resources, having access to a liquid stock, a currency that they can do M&A with, I think is very important given the competitive dynamic. And as you know, Eric, SeatGeek initially was more of a secondary ticket player. Now they've become a primary ticket player where you have to go and buy rights from whether it's the the Brooklyn group or any of these other teams and organizations, Cavaliers those rights are a big deal. Exactly. So those rights are expensive. And so having access to capital and having access to those resources, I think is very important. Yeah. And really opens up international expansion, really for both entities. When you, you sort of look at the rationale and what some of the sort of uh, formal statements were in, in both of these deals, the Red Bulls, SeatGeek deal, and as well as the uh, DraftKings Horizon Vivid deal, you know, looking beyond just North America and particularly as we've discussed in, in many weeks, the increasing North American interest in teams in Europe, Asia, elsewhere. All of these new opportunities uh, opened up in these other areas where perhaps you may have different levels of maturity in terms of the uh, business structures that have been put in place and all of these new data opportunities here. Again, having those the scale to be able to open up these new territories for these companies, really critical. Yeah, the, the data piece is, is key, Eric. And I think that's my sense is part of the reason that the DraftKings relationship made sense because when you talk about selling tickets and there's a lot of SEO optimization going on there, a lot of connection with fans and a lot of outreach, the ability to do commercial deals and and have integration between a company like DraftKings and Vivid Seats can really make a lot of sense. And I think to your earlier point, I think in probably the rear view mirror or the front mirror or whatever the case may be, the fanatics presence out there with the database they control and the potential for them going into betting, into ticketing, into these other things, I think is creating the need for more scale and integration, not just within ticketing, but across direct to consumer channels overall. Yeah, you can kind of pretty quickly see that in a year or two that we're going to be looking at probably just three or four major international entities in this space that have all amassed pretty significant scale. There may be you know, further combinations among some of these players, but it really is an arms race that's happening here. But the interesting thing is that if you're a team and particularly a team at the sort of top end of your, your respective sport, you're really kind of in the catbird seat is because as these contracts come up for renewal, you know, the bids are going to be very robust because the relationships, you know, again, you can move into so many different areas. 
Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's a renewed uh, competitive dynamic in the ticketing space after that space had a tough time during the pandemic. There's this new category of of betting sponsorships and relationships. There's the new category of NFTs, which we've talked about a lot. So it's great to be an IP owner, especially a top tier IP owner at this time. Yeah, and just even in the short term here, you know, we're you know two three months into fairly robust event attendance around the industry. And, you know, fortunately, we have not seen a lot of uh, reports of any of these games becoming super spreader events. Uh, You know, a number of instances, you've got vaccine requirements, uh, you know, and or negative test requirements. And, you know, those measures seem to be working that, yes, there's still plenty of work to be done, you know, relative to vaccination status in the pandemic overall. But it appears that these events are now continuing on and in really seeing full houses on a nightly basis as we are during the MLB postseason and other major events, you know, certainly the NFL college football as well, you know, hockey and basketball just getting going, same thing, that these full houses, they've been able to be full without there being a major operational challenge, which then just, you know, furthers the recovery trajectory of each of these companies. Absolutely. And there has been a bit of a roller coaster over the last 18 months of optimism, pessimism, optimism. I think right now the optimism scale is is leading. I think there's really hope that we are getting past Delta and, and we're moving this forward. But I'd like to get back to the DraftKings piece of this as well, which is really intriguing to me. And, you know, they are taking such a different DraftKings, a different approach than many of the other operators in the sense that they really are going far afield from just betting. They are in the content business and hired a new head of content. They are in the NFT business through their relationship with Autograph. They are making acquisitions like VEASAN. They are now uh, getting in the ticketing space. That's a different strategy than many of the other operators that are sticking a little bit more straight down the middle in terms of the way they're engaging uh, customers or acquiring customers. Time will tell which is going to be the right strategy, but it really is an interesting case study to see you know, their ambitions in this space. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And both you and I have known Jason Robbins, uh, particularly the the chairman, uh, CEO, and co-founder of DraftKings for a long time. And you know, really in their earliest days of just being a daily fantasy company. And, you know, I don't know about you, Chris, but I was struck by the sort of ambition and the big picture thinking even six and seven years ago where, you know, he had this sort of general notion of when it came to just general fan engagement and what it meant to be a sports fan, he wanted DraftKings to be involved in a, in a meaningful way. And this is now, you know, all these years later and a lot of twisted turns and becoming a public company and doing all the things that you just described, that's really now coming to fruition that initial vision. Yeah, and he has always been and, and continues to be aggressive. And maybe that was part of, you know, starting after FanDuel started and needing to catch up, or may have been just part of his leadership style or personality, but they they continue to be groundbreaking in, in the things that they do. And again, this is another example of that in the ticketing space. Well, shifting gears to somebody else who's often been at the uh, groundbreaking edge of the industry, uh, LeBron James, NBA superstar. He's had for some time with his longtime business partner, Maverick Carter, Spring Hill. This is a production company that's uh, been involved in a number of things. Most recently, the Space Jam uh, sequel that uh, LeBron himself starred with and, and premiered over the summer. They have uh, taken a, a big round of investment from a number of leading entities, uh, some of which are longtime partners of LeBron's in various forms, Nike, Epic Games, uh, Redbird again, 
Fenway Sports Group again. They've all collectively bought into an investment round in this company. And even though LeBron James and Maverick Carter are still going to have majority control of Spring Hill, you've got these new partners and a valuation of uh, $725 million and really kind of signals that not only the money itself, but the pedigree of these backers that you know, LeBron and Maverick really have some uh, big time ambitions in terms of where Spring Hill can go, not only creatively, but from a business standpoint. You're absolutely right, Eric. And certainly when you think of somebody like Redbird, they are a pure private equity investor. They're looking at what kind of return that they can get on their money. Obviously, Nike and, and the others, Epic, want to do well, but they also have other business with LeBron. I think they're really looking at LeBron as a brand that can be transformative, not only on the court during his playing days, but ultimately post-playing days. Him being in LA does help with this in terms of the entertainment elements of what they're looking to do. They've already had some successes. So I do think this is a big investment in, in, in LeBron, really, the way others over the years have invested in Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson. I think LeBron is really in a, in a good position to take advantage of his post-playing uh, career. Yeah, and you think about the kind of projects, that, and it's going to sort of run the gamut between feature films and documentary projects and episodic series that may run on broadcast or streaming or both or premium cable. They've got a show on HBO right now. There's a lot of different ways to sort of, uh, you know, do storytelling that they're going to be involved in. And, you know, this is a way for them and LeBron particularly to sort of have a creative voice out there, you know, and even though he's not necessarily going to be the foremost artist in, in any of these projects, but him as the head of this company and having sort of a direct hand in it, you know, this is a way for him and Maverick to sort of, you know, be out there and have their voice heard in a variety of ways. Yeah, that that, that clearly is a key motivation from everything that we've heard and seen and, and discussed. And having that voice is important to LeBron. I, I, what, what was interesting to me is thinking about this venture compared to, let's say, what Derek Jeter did with Players' Tribune, which where, where Derek also wanted to, in a way, give players, athletes a voice. In the case of LeBron, it's really more about a production company, whereas with Players' Tribune, it at least started more as a destination. Obviously, there was production going on, but it was a, a website, a digital destination. I think that's one thing. I think secondly, though, it looks like over time, LeBron really wants to be in the center of this in a way that when we saw Players' Tribune, it was ultimately about a lot of different players and a, and a pretty uh, a large group of individuals involved, whereas I think LeBron's voice is going to be central to a lot of the things that they do here. Yeah, I think that's a really good point here. And then just using that Springheel vehicle to sort of go in, a, in all these major partners to go in a variety of different directions, things that we haven't even necessarily thought of. I mean, you know, for example, one of the things that's already come in with this prior epic LeBron relationship is that, you know, he became an avatar in Fortnite earlier this year. And like, you know, and we're just now, you know, really beginning to understand NFTs, you know, and, and, you know, spent, you know, much of this year talking about them. But, you know, a year, two years ago, obviously we weren't talking about NFTs in the same sort of way that you've really got a foundation here that something new that comes along that we haven't even necessarily imagined yet, you know, two, three, four years down the line, whatever, that you've got this production framework in place and all of this resource in place that they, they're going to have this ability to be very nimble, very opportunistic, you know, with whatever these new opportunities emerge to be. And with plenty of capital and with blue chip partners that have both money and strategic 
value to bring. And as you say, it could be gaming, could be content, could be commerce. All of these things are kind of coming together in one way or the other. And given the strength of, of not only LeBron's brand, but his relationships with other athletes, with others in the entertainment community, this is going to be one of the, the most powerful production entities out there uh, as we as we go forward. Yeah. And as he gets into his late 30s here, this is also something that really kind of sets him up for, you know, obviously he's going to have any number of opportunities post playing career, you know, whether that be, you know, team ownership or wherever he wants to go. But this will certainly be one of those things at the center of it. And even though he's still obviously playing at a high level and this could be a Tom Brady situation where he's around still for a long time, you know, Old, you know, Father Time's still undefeated. There will come a point in time where he's not an active NBA player, but then you've got this really interesting, you know, business asset in place that he can even dive further into. Yeah, absolutely. He's going to have a lot of options. And I do wonder whether ultimately, you know, team ownership jibes with owning a company like this. I, I, see, I think certainly he could do it, but I just wonder whether uh, you get into some topics and stories and issues that may be challenging as as those two things either make sense together or don't. Again, time will tell on that, but but certainly uh, there'll, there'll be a lot of people watching it. Well, you mentioned Jeter before, and he's obviously been able to navigate that as he's moved into his new role with the Miami Marlins, and that's certainly a you know a template here. And if you know anybody can sort of figure out how to thread that needle, LeBron's certainly one of those people who could. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, speaking of team ownership here, we've got another new entity that's uh, really sort of loaded for bear in terms of where they can go in terms of various team ownerships. Uh, Arctos, Texas-based venture capital fund, they've been you know, sort of quietly but diligently already amassing a portfolio of minority team interests on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, you know, they're involved with the NBA Sacramento Kings and Golden State Warriors. They're involved with Fenway Sports Group, as we mentioned them again. They've got some European assets. Well, they've put together, they've sort of closed their initial sports fund at $3 billion with the sort of the last $2.1 billion of that coming fairly recently here. And as they've pulled that all together now, they've got this really sort of big you know, package of capital to, ready to deploy right at the same time that a number of leagues, the NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, among them have adjusted their rules in recent months and years to allow institutional ownership to come in. This was something that was not at all a part of the North American pro sports landscape for many years. This is now changing yet again where you see this uh, institutional money coming in already and with $3 billion now under management, you know, Artos is going to be a very serious player, you know, and and plenty of franchises that are even not necessarily up for sale, but, you know, they make their own inbound inquiries for recapitalization and we'll be able to get things done for sure. It is certainly a good development for people who own LP stakes or who own, as you say, majority control of teams who want to sell off a slice it is really an impressive accomplishment, I would say, Eric. There, there's two things that happen. One is they raised three billion dollars, which I believe is the largest sports-specific fund out there ever created. And secondly, they got a number of these leagues through their own efforts and through the efforts of these uh, individual leagues to allow this kind of transaction to happen in a relatively short period of time. So when you think about it, in in, in two or three years, they have really become a force in the way capital flows within at least a, a number of these major leagues. And congratulations to them. That's that's a really big accomplishment. 
So, but this gets back to the sort of inherent tension that I we've talked about in prior weeks that on one hand, you know, you raise $3 billion and sort of the, the core, you know, predication on this whole thing is the, 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 you know, optimism in the sports industry for all the things that we talked about in terms of the, you know, live event space and the ability to aggregate mass audiences in a way that, you know, really nothing else can in our culture. But by the same token, you have these LP stakes that if they don't necessarily have a lot of rights attached to them or pathways to control, you know, they can be sort of seen in a lot of ways as just glorified season tickets. And so, you know, there's some inherent tension there. It it really depends, Eric, on you know, will there be liquidity on the other side of this? Will there be a number of other buyers in five, six, seven years to buy these stakes? Clearly, team values have been going up for a long time, which theoretically means these LP stakes have been going up in value. But the problem for a lot of LP stake owners was there's no one there to buy their stakes. Now, if you've got uh, Arctos and Dial and some other private equity folks getting into the mix and you have more of a fluid market, that really creates tremendous amount of value in terms of being able to buy and sell and, and create a real market, which is what I think they're trying to do. Yeah. And so the other piece of this is whether they become sort of more public. They they did formally announce the closure of this uh, new fund. And obviously that's a big number that they, they certainly want to tout. But heretofore, they've been not terribly out there. They've got some pretty well-known and accomplished people in their ranks. Uh, you know, Doc O'Connor, who used to be a, a big executive at MSG Sports, Theo Epstein, you know, who brought World Series glory to both the Chicago Cubs and the Boston Red Sox. They're both involved. They've got a number of other really accomplished, uh, experienced sports industry executives involved here. But this, they've not really had a big public profile heretofore. And you wonder if that's going to sort of now change as, the, you know, word is obviously out that they've got this money and they're looking to spend. Yeah. I mean, I think people in the industry know who they are. It is interesting, Eric, that I think there was an announcement made or part of their release that there were done about 12 or 14 investments 14. so far, and only a couple of them have That's really been point. covered yeah. Yeah, in, in the media. I think part of that is because a lot of LP stake owners like to keep it private. They don't necessarily want people to know who they are or what they made. I think the leagues you know, kind of are helpful in that regard as well. They're not necessarily out there promoting or publicizing all of these things. I think that dynamic, honestly, will continue. I don't think we're going to see press releases around all these LP stake deals, but I do think if you own a team, you know who Arctos is now, and uh, and certainly the LP folks are, are are looking for them to come around with the with a big check when it makes sense. Yeah, and the one thing that I'm particularly going to be interested to watch is around baseball. That not only are they the most dependent among the major North American properties on gate revenue, which is just now coming back, you know, after the impacts of the pandemic here, but if we, you know, have labor problems to start and maybe go deep into the 2022 calendar, as it appears that we might, there's going to be further liquidity challenges for a number of these baseball teams. And this is something that that money could help solve for a lot of these clubs. Yeah, I think that that would be certainly another opportunity for an Arctos or for other private equity if there was a need for liquidity in a league because of a, a labor situation. Also, you know, we don't really have the NFL involved in this marketplace yet. That could happen at some point. Uh, there are some other types of investments that could emerge. So I do think there is real upside and and more 
uh, potential stakes that are going to be available over time, whether it is through the need for liquidity or, or the desire to uh, take some gains off the table, depending upon how, how these owners feel. Well, and that gets to the other thing that we've talked about relative to the NFL values and, you know, assuming the uh, the Broncos come to market as a lot of people expect that they will, that'll be another window into this. But as we've discussed that, you know, the, the business for the NFL is just so good that these team values are inevitably you're going to get to that four or five billion dollar range. And that's just a big number for anybody to get to without help along the lines of what we're talking about from somebody like an Arctos. Yeah, that uh, that does make a lot of sense, and I think there is potential value there for that kind of capital. The only thing that kind of overhangs all of this is, you know, leagues can change their rules, and while they have changed them uh, favorably right now, you know, who knows what that looks like in the future, and so that is a little bit of a risk as you think about investing into these situations. And so, again, I, I think the pathway is pretty well set. But again, you're subject, if you're a LP owner, to the rules of the league, to the rules of the majority owner. And those are difficult challenges for institutional investors that are often used to setting the terms themselves. So we'll see how, how, that, how that jibes over time. Well, clearly much more to watch here uh, with Arctos and how that whole LP uh, landscape develops here. You know, as we close out an episode of uh, Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we want to look ahead and get uh, another sense of what's uh, catching our eye in the space. And Chris, we'll start with you. Eric, I I noticed that uh, Fubo TV announced a deal this week with NASCAR to be an official betting operator of NASCAR. Fubo had done a couple of other sports team deals recently. They are apparently setting to launch their sports book, you know, relatively soon. And I will be very interested to see how that integration works, leveraging a media and streaming service with a betting service and whether that experience is great or not great or how that all comes together. We've had some other examples of media companies that are sports books, the score being one, Barstool essentially being now part of Penn National, but this is an entirely different flavor and we'll see whether the level of integration is really uh, compelling. Yeah, and from my standpoint, uh, you know, really noticed the strong energy around the start of the uh, new NHL season. They're back on the regular calendar again, and, and most notably, they've got these new, uh, these two new uh, domestic media rights deals with Turner and. ESPN. And on both fronts, uh, strong ratings to start, but more importantly, just up and down uh, quality reviews on the coverage. You've got, you know, Wayne Gretzky fronting the studio team on the Turner side. You've got a lot of, you know, sort of the uh, well-known, experienced, uh, you know, hockey uh, commentators on the ESPN side who have come back uh, into that role as that network uh, now has NHL rights for the first time in 17 years. You know, but there was a real, real strong start for this league. It's going to be really interesting to see if that momentum continues. Like a lot of leagues, you have this big energy right at the start. And then, you know, week, two weeks, three weeks in, you sort of sag and get into a different sort of level of energy. But whether or not the NHL can really maintain this big momentum that they started with this season, it's going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah, I think they're counting on the fact now that they have two big partners to help them drive that interest, whereas before they really had all of their product with NBC. I think that was a good relationship. There are obviously pros and cons when you move from one network to the other, but I think the freshness and the excitement that new networks can bring to the table 
you know, both on their linear products, but ultimately in their streaming products as well, uh, can give you a real big boost. And I think that's what the NHL is counting on. Well, and just the, the Gretzky thing in and of itself, he's just, he's he's worked really hard at this. And again, the initial reviews are great and there's no bigger name in hockey than Wayne Gretzky. And so to see that go off so well at the beginning here, that's just, you know, everybody in the sport benefits from that. Absolutely. And as basketball has its Charles Barkley and some of the great analysts that have evolved over the years, hockey has and will have uh, new kinds of analysts as well. Well, that'll close out another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. Thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.